Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Real Estate Podcast, the intersection between the latest trends in real estate and its impact on our everyday lives. We're your hosts, Alex Norman. And Jamie Blonde, and you've come to the right location. The real estate starts now. In today's episode, Money Never Sleeps, we explore the intersection between real estate and finance. Today's guest is Randy Watts, the Chief Investment Officer for O'Neill Global Advisors, a subsidiary of O'Neill Capital Management, an investment advisor that develops systematic equity trading strategies using quantitative modeling and algorithms. Prior to that, Randy was the Chief Investment Strategist for William O'Neill & Company, a global independent equity research and advisory firm. He has spent 30 years as a portfolio manager for various mutual and hedge fund companies. Randy, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Randy. Uh, Thanks for having me. So, Randy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm a finance professional in the investment industry. Like you mentioned, I've worked in it for over 30 years. Grew up in New England. Happy to say a graduate of University of Virginia, which recently won the lacrosse NCAAs. So pretty happy about that. Nice plug. And have recently have recently uh, relocated from New York City to Miami and happy to be down here. So, Randy, uh, thanks for being on the show. So tell us, how did you get into finance? When I got out of school, to be blunt, it was the first job I got. I got a job for a division of John Hancock as a stock analyst and as an assistant PM on an environmental stock mutual fund. And that really led my career. I got a CFA when I was pretty young. I think I had my CFA by the time I was 25, 26. And I've just been very lucky to work in an industry that's been a pretty rewarding industry over the last 30 years. So tell us for our listeners, Randy, you've been a portfolio manager in a variety of different places, very successful. What exactly does a portfolio manager do? Well, it depends on the asset class and the kind of fund. But what I did in most of my career was select U.S. stocks, primarily growth stocks to invest in either in a mutual fund, separate account, or hedge fund environment. So I've seen a lot of market cycles, seen a lot of things go in and out of favor, and seen a lot of great companies rise and fall. Spent a few late nights, I'm sure, when you're going to sleep with positions, right? Absolutely. It's a stressful industry, but it's a well-rewarded industry. So I'm, I mean, I'm very happy with the career I've had and, and still have. And now you're on the quant side. What is the difference between quant and non-quant? What quant is, is really systematic trading. So what we do is we look at a variety of factors that we select out of a database and we write custom algorithms and the algorithm tells us when to buy and sell stocks. It's kind of like money ball for investing with the theory that there are repeatable patterns in the stock market. And it's a a major trend in the industry. And I think it's going to be a big trend in a variety of of asset classes over the next 20 years. You're basically a computer. I, I'm not a computer, but fortunately, I have uh, people who work with me who understand computers and know how to write excellent code to help us shape our programs. Now, you know, not to be a doomsday, but you know, there's this thing called Skynet where the computer takes over and <laughs> does everything for us. I mean, are you are you essentially building a machine that will eventually make jobs like yours, like the ones that you have, obsolete? Machine learning and AI are definitely major factors inside of quantitative investing. The thing that's the trickiest with quantitative investing is that factors, a factor is something that can influence a stock. It could be revenue growth, it could be trading volume, et cetera, which we think are predictive of future stock price movements. The thing that's tough about quantitative investing is that factors move in and out of favor. 
So one of the big things that the human element is involved there is figuring out when to turn on and off certain factors, when to cycle out of them. What works in the market for a 10-year period may not work in the next 10 years. So we spend a lot of time on a thing called walk-forward optimization. We try to forecast what we think the factors are that are going to influence stocks in the future. This is kind of back to the Wayne Gretzky saying, right, skate to where the puck is, not where the puck was. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that. Yeah, I can imagine March 1st, there was no algorithm that predicted COVID-19, right, 2020. Absolutely. The thing that was most unusual about the last year and a half in the markets is that decline you had last year in the S&P in terms of velocity, and we think about velocity as price change divided by number of days, that was the fastest drawdown in terms of velocity in the history of the market. And what was also unusual about it is the market V-bottomed. Normally, when the market goes down that much, it spends a little time bouncing around the bottom before it rises again. This time around, it didn't. It, it V-bottomed. Stocks have had a massive run. And actually, the S&P is now up 36% over the last 12 months. It's up 17.5% year to date. So it's been a very rewarding time, despite, obviously, the negatives of the pandemic for stock investors. Well, you know, when I hear you talk, Randy, and I was on the other side of where you were, portfolio managers like yourself were my clients. And I was always very impressed with the successful portfolio managers because it seemed like it was half science, half art. Anybody can mathematically run the numbers of where the market is or the value of a stock or the PE ratio, or the price over earnings or how much debt a company has. But there's also a feel for when the market is going to reward a certain type of stock or a certain industry. Um, how do you balance that feel versus log logic in terms of really being able to be ahead of the curve to put up numbers that are better than the market for your customers? I think in many industries, data science is reshaping how people do things. We've seen that in sports. We've seen it in healthcare. We're seeing it now in finance. I think that's going to continue to be a trend. <clears throat> I think the key is identifying correctly which factors are not coincidental, but actually have something behind them and are long-term lasting in nature. So we have a large database of proprietary data for 70,000 stocks globally. Our database in some cases goes back 100 years. We've got 250 factor families and 10,000 individual factors. We're mapping new factors every week. And so we do spend a lot of time, again, trying to figure out, hey, what really is influencing stocks and what's going to influence stocks in the future? So what are you seeing across, what are you seeing across, uh, across industries? Like what sectors are the most volatile and, and what, what are the most long lasting if you look at the past you know, 18, 24 months? So what's going on right now in the stock market is there is a tug of war with investors between growth and value. And essentially, one camp believes, which is actually the camp that favors growth stocks, that we've already seen peak a peak rate of change for the economy in this economic cycle. So that going forward over the next year, economic growth is going to slow. There's a school of thought there that we're going to exit next year with GDP growing somewhere in that 2 to 3% range. If that occurs, inflation, which has been very high, we'll get into that later, will be coming down and interest rates will stay low. In that scenario, growth stocks, stocks like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, et cetera, are going to do very well because investors will afford them a very high valuation. The other school of thought 
is that the economy will stay growing rapidly as it's been growing rapidly as we've emerged from the lockdown and possibly will be boosted by more fiscal stimulus by the government if the Biden administration is able to get some of these bills through, like the infrastructure bill and like the reconciliation bill. And so what you've really seen recently is a tug of war between the value stocks represented by things like financials, basic materials, energy, capital goods, and growth stocks represented by things like technology and healthcare. Right now, the bond market has been voting for a slowdown. And importantly for your, for your listeners, the 10-year bond is back to 1.28%. The 30-year is actually back to 1.93%. Relative to real estate, where that's had a big impact is 30-year mortgage rates are back down to, third, to 3%. That's for both jumbos and for conforming mortgages. So the bond market really believes we're gonna see a slowdown over the next 12 months. Well, let's take that comment you made regarding the economy. I, from my point of view, it almost feels like a two-edged sword. If the government does put through some of this massive spending, it could lead to inflation. Inflation can be a problem for some stocks. Inflation can be a problem for a lot of things. Um, for an example, the government has been paying people not to work a lot of businesses are having trouble rehiring because it's almost as much money to the to, to not work as it is to work. And even if to work is a little more, no one's going to make that that jump. And so people can't hire enough to boost the economy. The, the, the businesses can't grow in the same way that there's a chip shortage for cars. There's a worker shortage for small businesses. What do you think of that? I'm in the camp that inflation is not as transitory as the Fed and a lot of market commentators believe. Right now, inflation is running. The last inflation reading, the CPI was up 5.39%. That's obviously a significant number. It's above the Fed's long-term target of two and a half. I think the inflation that's going to be sticky is in two areas. One is in rental, residential rental rates. Nationally, Right now, one bedrooms are running up in rents about 5.2%, and two beds are running up about 4.8%. So that's a pretty that's a pretty big number. The other place I think inflation is going to be sticky is in is in labor rates. If you look at the last two months, wages are growing at a 7.4% annual pace. So that is hitting a lot of small businesses, and that is not a number that comes down instantly. In other words, if you need to hire a prep cook for a small neighborhood restaurant, and you were paying that position $17 before an hour, and now you have to pay $20 an hour to get them. When there's a little bit more labor available, it's not like you're gonna cut that person's rate and take it right back down to, to 17, it's gonna stay at 20. So I do think there potentially could be a little bit of a margin squeeze in the second half of the year for some businesses. And again, I think inflation is gonna be stickier than a lot of commentators think right now. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to jump in on that because I think the inflation uh, is an interesting discussion because uh, I see inflation, inflation around things like wood, <laughs> natural resources. I mean, home building, you know, home builders need wood. Um, renovations need wood. And the price of wood has skyrocketed for most people, um, you know, who have seen who tried to either build their home or, or renovate their, their house. Uh, I think, and Jamie, your point about a, a two-edged sword, I'm trying to think about what a one-edged sword actually looks like. I think it's a butter knife. <laughs> but anyway, to, to be fair, I think there's a lot of things. We all need butter. Exactly. Um, can't believe it's not butter, but I also can't believe that <laughs> we're in a we're we're in this um, this precipice right now, where 
uh, I think to your point that you said earlier, Randy, that the, there's two different schools of thought. Both schools of thought, it seems like companies like Amazon win, right? I mean, Amazon doesn't lose under any scenario, I think, that you've mentioned. I mean, I think Amazon's biggest risk is, is government regulation. Uh, it's very, it's a very large company. It's a huge percentage of e-commerce. I think it is a possible target for some kind of a consent decree like Microsoft had to do, you know, 20 years ago. So I think that's a risk. I think there's a possibility some at some point the government could also require a disaggregation of their cloud services businesses, which is known as AWS, and have that be stripped out from the e-commerce business. I think for the major tech companies, that's probably the biggest risk. Some of these companies are almost, you know, monopolistic in, in some of their market shares. And I think there we are likely to see increased government regulation underneath this administration. Yeah, so their risk is their success, basically. That that's true in their 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 market shares. Um, it's very different. I'm not trying to draw a parallel, but it is interesting to note that China has already taken some aggressive moves on some of their largest technology companies in the last month or so. So I think increased regulation is a potential theme for the mega cap stocks, those stocks that have a trillion or more type market caps. I want to jump in on just really quickly backtrack about your point about real estate. Uh, a recent article in New York Times was talking about how there's some cities in America where people have left urban environments and moved out into in the suburbs and this is rural areas where there's a shortage of water. So, so they'd start building and then the towns would shut down any new developments because of a water shortage. And, and so there's an interesting, um, you know, obviously the government is pushing back on growth in some cases, but the, the natural environment in a lot of ways is pushing back on growth in some, in some instances. Yeah, do you, are you finding that to be factored into some of your, um, your models? Uh, if I, I do, I would say there's, there's, there's two different trends here. One is a trend out of some concentrated urban areas to either secondary cities or the suburbs. I don't think that trend is over with the reopening. I think that we are gonna see people continue to want larger homes, more space. And because of the fact that most people in the white collar or knowledge worker job market are not gonna be in offices five days a week. Let's say they're gonna be in an office three days a week or four days a week. They might be willing to have a longer commute to the suburbs and therefore push out a little farther to get a slightly less expensive home that's bigger. So I think that's, I think it's one factor. I think another factor, which you kind of hinted at is climate change. I think that is a major factor and it's a major factor for long-term real estate investors. If you look at the Miami market, some of the areas with the highest level above, above sea level right now are places like Little Haiti and, and Overtown. And a lot of developers are buying property there. So I do think climate change is going to factor into a lot of this. If you buy a new property in Miami along the coast right now, one of your biggest expenses is actually insurance. And in many areas in Miami, the only insurance company who will insure you is Citizens, which is the state-run insurance company. Well, you know, so I just have to jump in on that because that's hilarious. Because that reminds me of um, Lex Luthor in in Superman Part One. Like that was his main business strategy. He was going to blow up California and buy real estate property. Everybody has their fault. Mine's in California. <laughs> 
So it's interesting how, how you uh, look. I mean, Lex Luthor's strategy in real estate investing is kind of is interesting. Randy, you hit on a great topic, which is when you said that not everybody who was relocated out of the urban centers into the suburbs, not everyone's going to go back. And I always use the analogy that even if there were, were was no COVID and you're in Kansas and you, or you're in Chicago and you want to move to Kansas, not everybody moves to Kansas is going to like Kansas. Some are going to, you know what? I was happier in Chicago. So in any kind of migration, there will be some reversing, but I do believe in, in the same way you do that not everybody is going to go back and it doesn't take much of a percentage of people staying as an example in Miami to completely change the growth path of a city or a suburb. Um, we've talked in the past about real estate. You're very involved in real estate. You're very knowledgeable. At one point you mentioned there were a variety of factors, I think four that you thought were important when it came to real estate, whether it's work from home, liquidity, uh, delays in startups, uh, inventory. Do you want to touch on some of those briefly? Yeah, I think, I think the, well, there's two sets of, of drivers here. I guess the question is, do you want me to make a comment relative to the national experience or do you want to really focus in on South Florida? I think if you started national and then went to Florida, I think that would be helpful for our listeners. Okay, so, so the first thing that's driving real estate nationally is the fact that interest rates, as we mentioned earlier, are so low. And we are all in a, in a kind of a Gen X age group here on this call. And when, when we were coming out of a college, getting a mortgage under 5% would have been a dream. It was always, you were always taught, boy, if you can get a mortgage for 5%, you, you buy a home and you take it. Now we're talking about 30-year fixed at 3%. So mortgages are extremely inexpensive right now. In addition, the tax code still favors home ownership with the deductibility of mortgage debt, I believe up to what, 1.1 million right now. And so that's, a, that's an incentive. And as we talked about, rents are rising pretty rapidly around the United States. So that makes owning a home attractive as well. So the first thing that is driving demand is the fact that right now, affordability in many markets is pretty good given the cost of the mortgage. The second thing that's driving it, as we talked about a second ago, is this move out of certain big urban areas where people were more likely to be renters, whether that's a place like Los Angeles or New York City, into suburbs or second tier cities where they're more likely to be owners. Now, what's occurred over the last year or so is because of COVID, we've actually fallen behind in new home deliveries because people weren't able to work at the same frequency as they normally would. And so home deliveries have really fallen off the last year or so. And so that has made the ratio between supply and demand a little unbalanced. So what's happened to inventory? Do you have those numbers by any chance? Well, I, I don't have the national one in front of me. One thing that's interesting in the Miami market is Miami was one of the big, I mean, obviously COVID's a horrible experience, so I don't mean to say this in a positive sense, but Miami as a city was a beneficiary of people leaving other cities during the pandemic to come here. A lot of people did that because of weather, et cetera. They wanted to be, a bit, be, be outdoors, et cetera, during the winter. If you look at where Miami coastal homes worth a million dollars or more inventory was pre-COVID. We had about 31 to 32 months of inventory. Over the last year and a half, that's fallen to 2.6 months. In terms of condos, Miami coastal condos, pre-COVID, we had about 80 months of supply. 
that has been absorbed very rapidly. We're down to 6.3 months. So this massive absorption wave has occurred in Miami over the last 18 months. And I'm just looking at some data as you're talking in terms of nationally, June home sales were up 23% year over year. And the average price is now 363,000, which is up 23%. And one of the comments that the Wall Street Journal was making is that we've finally gotten to a point in pricing that the low end first time buyer is being priced out. They either can't put down the deposit and, you know, they can't put down the 20% or the 10%. And, and, and combining what you're saying that we're going to start seeing inventory start to rebuild, do you think we might be close to a peak? I think real estate remains a local business. And I think in some markets where the main driver was just that liquidity and interest rates, that they likely are nearer to peaks. I think in areas like Miami, which is seeing significant Miami and all of Florida, which is seeing significant in-migration, I actually don't think. I think we have a long, long way to go for prices in Miami over the next 10 years. I think people who buy now, 10 years from now, are going to be happy they did. There's a little over 6 million people in Southern Florida, including both coasts. There's 8.5 million people in New York City. I think as you think about the next 10 years, you should say to yourself, 10 years from now, how big is New York City going to be? 10 years from now, how many people are going to live in South Florida? My bet is it's going to be a lot more than 6 million. In other words, a continued migration from perhaps the northern high taxing states to the southern lower taxing states? I think I think it's a migration driven by taxes. It's a migration driven by weather. And, you know, Florida continues to be a much lower cost of living despite the increases of the last two years relative to places like California and New York. New York is still an extremely expensive place to live. The highest marginal tax rate is now 14%. Rents are still very expensive. I mean, they've come down in New York City over the last two years, but they're still very, very high. And the price per foot is still very high over up, up there as well. In New York City, it's over $1,000 a foot, which is near the higher end of a lot of the buildings in Miami. And what about corporate locations? Relocation? We're starting sorry. to see a migration of, of jobs to Florida. What we're seeing oftentimes is the pandemic has really driven home for corporate America the need to be geographically diverse because of lockdowns. So many companies, particularly in the financial services space, are, are opening significant branches here in Florida. Some of those companies in Florida include the major hedge fund Millennium, which I believe at the end of the year is gonna have close to 500 people down here. Uh, Citadel, which is one of the largest uh, hedge funds in the, in the world. Goldman Sachs Asset Management is opening a major branch in West Palm Beach. Now, I want to be clear, these companies are not closing their branches in places like New York, but they are all opening satellite offices that are going to be pretty reasonably staffed. And so that trend is starting. I think people want a more spread out workforce in case there are issues. And again, to go back to our earlier comment, if there's 6 million people in all of Southern Florida, it doesn't take that many of these people to move down here to have a major impact on the economy. Yeah, but all that stuff can change right away, right? I mean, it's not a secret that uh, people are leaving New York and California because of the taxes and the prices and all that. So eventually when everything, this, these cities 
empty out, things have to change, right? And so with the prices drop and people are like, all right, you know what? I've lived in, um, I'm living now in Arizona. I'm living in Southern Florida. And you know what? I've been here for a couple of years and I'm tired of growing tomatoes or, or, or avocados in my backyard. I want to go back to the city. And it's now then cheaper because of the, the rise in prices and so forth. So it becomes a game, no? I guess I would disagree with that. I think these these are very long, slow-moving trends. They're decades in the making. Texas and Florida are growing very rapidly. California and New York both lost, I believe, house seats in, in the last census. It's the first time ever, I believe, like that California lost a house seat. I think these are 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 big long factors. And I I actually don't see that reversing in the next five to 10 years in, in Florida. I just, I just don't see it. Well, let's talk about uh, Miami for a second. And I don't think we can bring up Miami without touching on Surfside, the horrible disaster that happened here recently that I'm sure everybody's aware. And, uh, and uh, we feel terrible for obviously the families that were affected. What do you think that means for the Miami market? I think it, I think it means a lot. Uh, first off, as you mentioned, it was a horrible tragedy. Our prayers and thoughts go out to everyone who lost a loved one there. So far, the current death death toll in the Surfside building collapse is 97. To put that into perspective, and something I'll come back to later, there were 44 deaths from Hurricane Andrew back in 92. So that shows you how horrible an event this really was. I think the impact on, on Miami in the short run is is a couple of things. First, there's a big difference between buildings that were built pre-Andrew and post-Andrew. After the Hurricane Andrew, which again was a 92, it was a category five hurricane that hit the state, did $25 billion of damage back then, uh, building codes were really tightened up. And in fact, Florida has the tightest building codes in the nation for things built after Andrew. So the buildings after Andrew were very, very stable. What's it, what it's causing right now in the short run in the market is a massive scrambling by all these condo boards and owners of multifamily to examine their buildings. And everyone is rushing to do any repair needed. They're very worried about something horrible happening or being sued, et cetera. And that is causing a real shortage in contractors and really driven, driving contractor rates through the roof right now down here. I do think, however, that coming out of this in a, in a positive sense, and again, it's a horrible tragedy, so I'm not saying the tragedy is positive, but we're going to have an extremely well-repaired, well-inspected housing stock down here. And I also expect to see some law changes by the state with regards to inspections and, and the 40-year inspection period, et cetera. So I do think uh, uh, people are taking note of this, and, and there is a lot going on right now in terms of repairs. Well, that's a great point. All three of us on this show live in buildings, live in high rises. And personally, when Surfside happened, and again, like you say, a horrible tragedy, um, the one first thing I did was call the office and ask when's the last time this building was inspected. And as it turns out, two years ago, we had to redo the swimming pools because there was some leakage at the bottom. It was a 12-year-old building at that point. And at that time, when they did the repairs, they had the opportunity to inspect everything from underneath the building through the top. And, uh, and so we have a clean bill of health, but I think you're right. I think anybody who's in a high rise would naturally panic a little as to, you know, what does this mean for my building? And let's be honest, we're all basically living on limestone and sand. It's not like we're living in the Rocky mountains with a solid bedrock. 
So I can see how that could be a cause of concern and everybody could be panicking at the same time. And I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of the buildings here are over 40 years old. They are, they're all being inspected, but I do want to emphasize the Surfside collapse was very unusual, very rare. Uh, the only other building I know right off the top of my head that's being closed for repairs right now is there's a building in Coral Springs this week that got, that got is getting evacuated and, and repaired. But I think all these inspections and repairs are a good thing, not a bad thing. So new uh, buyers in the Florida market can feel pretty good, I think, going forward that everything is going to be in, in pretty good condition when they purchase. You know, it's unfortunate that something bad had to happen before some good has to happen, right? And so I think that, you know, um, I think the net result is that I think that we'll all feel more comfortable that that these types of issues won't happen in the future, but unfortunately they had to happen in the past for us to take notice. So, I, you know, I think that that proactivity in the sense will trickle across the nation, right? I think that, you know, obviously Southern Florida is, is, is a place where um, is the is ground zero, but in other coastal cities around America, people are starting to take notice and, and, and do the right thing. Absolutely. Again, a lot of those places don't have the kind of building codes we had post Andrew. So if something really big hits, I mean, if a hurricane hits Los Angeles, which I think is a possible occurrence in the next 50 years as ocean waters continue to warm, you know, hurricanes are driven by the temperature of the of the, of the ocean water. You know, a lot of those roofs, et cetera, are not going to have the kind of code to be able to handle a category five, you know, windstorm. Right. Right. Randy, let's let's uh, let's take what you've just discussed about real estate and Southern Florida real estate and let's push that back back into the market now. If if what you expect to happen happen, everything from uh, we're still going to basically be affordable, rates are going to stay low, urban rentals are now suburban buyers. Uh, we are going to slowly start to see increase in inventory, but that will take a while. If all that comes to play, where do where should people be investing in the market? Well, in terms of in terms of real estate or in terms of assets, either one. I mean, I do think that given where interest rates are right now, it's hard for me to make a very bullish case on fixed income. I think over the next three to five years, stocks are going to continue to do well because they offer the ability for growth and they're very competitive with bond yields, as we mentioned earlier, one point uh, you know two eight percent on the on the ten year. So I continue to like I continue to like stocks longer term. I like real estate, but I like real estate by markets. You know, I don't know how enthusiastic I would be about buying real estate in some of the very high-priced buildings and areas in California and in New York. I think Texas and Florida, uh, the Carolinas, uh, Tennessee are places that are going to see continued appreciation, and that's really driven by migration. So I think one of the things you want to ask yourself as a real estate investor is where do I think the population is really going to grow? And that's usually where you want to where you want to buy real estate. I think with regards to Miami, I think the city's going to keep expanding to the west. So I think there's going to be opportunities, you know, next to next to next to Wynwood, next to the design district, you know, et cetera, as as we expand out that way, because we've kind of built everything out we can right along the water. So now we've got as we grow as a population, we're going to have to we're going to go west. And that's why prices are go growing along the water because there's no place else to build, right? Exactly. Unless you're in Edgewater where they keep putting up a new building every 15 minutes. Randy, um, 
I want to wrap up by just saying that this has been very, very insightful, both your outlook on the markets uh, from your experience as a portfolio manager, as well as your outlook on real estate from both that hat and as an investor yourself. Uh, I think uh, this show will be very informative for people who are looking to potentially invest in real estate and people who are coming down to Miami and looking to do something in Miami. So I want to thank you very much for taking the time and for all your insight. Thank you very much, Randy. Great, great to talk to you guys. Hope to see you soon. You've been listening to The Real Estate Podcast. Give us a quick review and rating on iTunes. Check out our website at therealestate.co and let us know if there are any new topics you'd like to hear us address. We love hearing your feedback. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.